we have these crossroads. And you know, either way you choose, your life is going to be different. The universe doesn't exist, but God thinks it does. We have to stop consuming our culture. We have to create culture. Stupidity has a definite evolutionary function. I am all for abolishing stupidity, but before it goes, we should pay tribute to it. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Nonsense Bazaar. We're your hosts. I'm Sequoia Kennedy. And I'm Willow Truman. How are you, Willow? I'm excellent. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I just realized that like, it's my standard opening to ask how you're doing. You mm-hmm. never ask me how I'm doing. <laughs> you just go right into the craziness. Yeah, I do. Uh, I, I, I spare no bars. I was trying to figure out how to do it. Like, I want to get better at that. I spare no bars. Spare no bars. Is that a saying? I don't think so, but I know what it means. Yeah. Yeah. I know what it means too. Yeah. If you don't fuck you, we ain't explain. <laughs> uh, so today we are continuing the story of America's psychic spies. Yes. I've been excited for this. Me too. And this, this is going to be the second of three. This is the Empire Strikes Back. It's the cream the, in the middle. This is the cream in the middle. I yeah. thought of cookies. You think of Star Wars. Well, yeah. I mean, Empire Strikes Back is definitely the cream in the middle. Mm. I don't know if this is actually the Empire Strikes Back. I was strike that from the record. This is part two of three. <laughs> <laughs> Last week, we learned how the, the parapsychology program at Stanford Research Institute got started with Russell Targ, Hal Putoff, Ingo Swan. Had them CIA boys swooped in there. And uh, we learned about Superman Pat Price. Yes. Who was probably murdered in 1975. It's a distinct possibility. Or he took shit care of himself and had a heart attack. And I don't know why. I don't know why they cremated him before telling his wife. That's that's suspicious as fuck. Yeah, that's suspicious as fuck. Yeah. Uh, By the way, if you haven't yet, look up a picture of these guys because it'll just add (laughs) so much more color to this story. Honestly, they're such fucking nerds. They're you know, all such dweebs. They're the boys. They're the boys, but they're the nerdiest boys. Yeah. Compare like these boys to like the, uh, the JPL boys. Yeah, that's exactly. The JPL what boys would kick the shit out of these guys. Yeah. <laughs> I oh think my they, god. They would have all hung out though. They would have been cool with Pat Price. I think they they would have gotten along with Hal Putoff. Yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's fun to imagine. And Kit Green, mm-hmm. definitely. Yeah. Such a colorful cast. It really is. We're gonna meet some more colorful cast. Now, as I said in the last episode, more and more names are going to start showing up in this story, more and more agency names and stuff. And like, it's going to stop being a a character story and become more of a widespread Mm -hmm. type of thing. So like, don't feel bad if you don't remember who someone is or something. I'm going to try to keep it concise and clear, Yeah, but it does get in that typical military intelligence way, just splayed out. Fine strokes, then broad strokes. Yes. Yes. So we're picking up after Pat Price's death in 1975, when, you know, it's now, it's a different thing now. Like the CIA looked at this stuff. They were like, oh shit, we can use this. And now it's in another phase. And we're going to see how yeah, that their, transpires. Their star is gone. Yeah, he, he, he did. He was the best of the best. He was the cream of the crop. He was the cream of the crop. Yeah. Unjustifiably in a position that I'd rather not be in. But the cream will rise to the top. Oh yeah. <laughs> Cream rise to the fucking top. Pat Price was the cream on top. Yeah, that's the best part. You get that fresh milk. Oh God! You know, <laughs> you ever had the fresh milk with I have. that separates? Mm, the cream it's on good. top. It's wicked good. That was Pat Price. That was Pat Price, ascended master. Pat Price. Yes. 
actually, we'll get back to that in a little bit. So before we uh, leave Macho Man behind and go on with our story, let's do our tarot poll. Yeah. So in this episode, um, the whole intelligence agency remote viewing program, it moves beyond SRI into some other branches of the government. And that's kind of what we're going to be looking at this week. Okay. So we're getting out of Stanford. We're still there. They're still around. But now we're moving up like other parts Mm -hmm. of the machine start popping up and stuff. And so that's where we're watching how the psychic shit spreads out from the contained power of SRI. Yeah. Oh. Hmm. The tower. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. I love it. So dramatic. It is. I can't believe we've never pulled that one before. Yeah, I don't think we have. Also, why don't we keep track of what we pull? We should do that. Shut up. Cut the mic, cut the mic, cut the mic. <laughs> yeah, we should. Like what we pull twice, you know, if there's any yeah. friends. I'll have to go back through and, or one of us have to go back through and. Yeah. 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 But okay, that's an interesting card. Uh, not the episode I would expect it for, but the tower, you know, destruction, collapsing structures and shit. Uh, it's the Trump of Mars. Hmm. That one makes sense to me. Action. Yeah, war. Shit. You know? Action, physicality, war, conflict. I was just thinking that word and you said it. My God. <laughs> wow. All right. Interesting. We'll put that aside. Talk about it later. Talk about it later on. Sweet. Hell yeah. All right. I never I don't usually introduce music I play. I think this one I do need to introduce. This is uh, Ingo Swan, the psychic. Yeah. He, um, he wrote this book called Starfire. It's about <laughs> some fucking silly 70s psychedelic civilization out on Mars or some a rollicking sci-fi adventure from the mind of Ingo Swan. Yeah. Yeah. He also wrote the lyrics to a soundtrack for his novel. Uh-huh. It was, I guess the for the motion picture that he assumed would happen. It didn't. Mm-hmm. So there's this album called Star Children. By Ingo Swan and Stephen Halpern. Stephen Halpern is a new age musician. And he's the only one doing any music on this. Ingo gets first billing because he's Ingo and he yeah. wrote the lyrics. But this is a track. This is the track Super Galaxy from the album Star Children. Oh boy. A companion to Ingo Swan's book Starfire. Starfire. <laughs> that is not what I was expecting. No, me neither. I it's like all. It. So yeah, far, it's so all right. Children, listen. Okay. <laughs> Children, listen. One night in the dark of Face is like showing up on the screen. With oh, wow. the, yeah. Brothers, the mind can see. Sisters, the soul can we. 
that is a totally different vibe than I was expecting, it's, and I love it. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's so I absolutely ridiculous. love it. I mean, this is seventies. Yeah, this is Ingo in the seventies. It's bananas. Yeah, it's fucking bananas. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and you know, it took me to a place in my mind. And you if know? you haven't realized it yet. That is the vibe of this whole story. It's fucking bananas. Yes. <laughs> it's the fucking weirdest shit, dude. Okay. While the boys at SRI were just having good times, spook them up psychic escapades, you know, the uh, Soviets were getting brutal and psychotic with it. Oh. You know. Excellent. Which is sort of the whole story of the Cold War, including the part where I left out the fucked up shit that was certainly happening on our end. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, according to rumors that were floating around the intel community, the Soviets once took a litter of baby rabbits on a submarine underwater. Oh, no. While the mother was left on shore with electrodes in her brain. I don't like this at all. And they systematically executed the babies one by one and recorded the mother's brain waves. No word on what they found. Uh, probably fucking nothing. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. Yeah. I think the reason for that was because they were really sold on the whole idea that it was very low frequency waves that were responsible for psychic phenomenon. Yeah. So that's why they took them underwater because water blocks VLF waves. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I get what they were going for to see if- No, it's, fu- it's fucked know, up. Super fucked up. But- I don't like it. I hate that. Yeah, me too. Um, a Leningrad woman named Nina Kulagina. <laughs> <laughs> Nicknamed Dread Nina could supposedly cause heart attacks from any distance just by directing her attention to her target. You don't want to piss her off. (laughs) Don't piss off Dread Nina, dude. In another case, supposedly, a group of Tibetan monks allegedly shattered a human skull through their combined psychic wills alone. (laughs) Wow. Stared at it really hard. I used to do that when I was a kid. Yeah, well, you didn't have six Tibetan monks backing you up. Like... You ever do that when you were a kid? Just see, just stare at something. Yes, see if you yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Soviet, like, however much of that is true, Dom. The Soviet did comb the countryside for promising psychics, and like, there was some of those they decided to see just how psychic they could make them by, you know, putting their brains into extreme states, shall we say, mm-hmm. through like overdoses on adrenaline, um, overdoses on depressants like phenobarbital. You know, one one way I mean, doesn't work. Try the other one. Certainly going to change the state of the brain. Yeah. By uh, giving it uh, large doses of drugs. Um, electroshocks they used to. Yeah, that's going to change it too. Also, uh, high strength magnetic fields. Yeah. <laughs> but what's the point? <laughs> like, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Some of them died and some were permanently brain damaged. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> now, whether any of this is true or not, we We'll probably never know. I mean, there was disinformation going back and forth. Both sides wanted the other to think they were doing wacky shit. We don't really know how much of that is true. Mm-hmm. What is true, though, is that Psy wasn't a laughingstock in the Soviet bloc, and Soviet scientists were free to talk about it. The same, as we've established, could not be said for the USA. Now, as Project Stargate gained more and more recognition, it gained more and more people actively trying to show how stupid it was. Uh, as Jim Schnabel points out, in his book, Remote Viewers, The Secret History of America's Psychic Spies, the hardcore psi evangelists tended to come from the skeptical side. People who had the really strong opinions, mm. they were all the skeptics, the capital S skeptics. Yeah. Right? You know, the worst type of true believer. Yeah. One of these unbelievers 
not to be confused with The Unbelievers, which is a very good podcast. It is. There was a CIA employee named Laura Dickens. She saw these reports coming in from Kit Green and Ken Kress, the CIA guys, and decided that she was going to do something about this superstitious garbage. I'm going to do something about it. Yeah, what are you going to do? How could all these people believe at this? It's every, everyone knows it's not real. Yeah. Oh, I love that. <laughs> so Laura Dickens takes a trip to SRI and explicitly tells Hal Putoff that she's there to de- debunk his wicked, wicked hoax. Hmm. Yeah. Hal and Russell thought, well, let's just show her what we do. So they did. One of the outbound see where someone drives to experiments, right? She, she of course, didn't believe it. There has to be a trick, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so they did it again with Laura driving to a place. Uh, with Russell Targ in the car with her. While in the car with Russell, she de- decided to change where she was driving because fuck procedure when you're exposing a wicked, wicked hoax, right? Anyway, the remote viewer still nailed it, and Laura Dickens still didn't believe it and was more sure than ever that she was the victim of a cruel trick. So the next time she came in, there was no remote viewer present. When Laura asked where they were, she was told, oh, she's here. It's you. You know, because these guys at this point are like, everyone can do this. Yeah. Yeah. To which, you know, Laura replied, You've got to be kidding. I don't believe in this bullshit. I'm not going to do this. And do you- Come on. Who wouldn't want to believe that they have psychic powers? Yeah. Come on. Well, the, so do you see why evangelical skepticism is a fucking nonsense point of view? Like, you've got to be kidding. I don't believe in this bullshit. Oh, you're, you're here to debunk this? Yeah. You should be jumping at the chance to go through the, you know. Right. After much protest, she eventually agreed to it. She was going to remote view half put off somewhere on the SRI campus. So- Russell said, close your eyes and tell me what you see. Laura says, okay, my eyes are closed. It's dark. I can see the back of my eyelids. <laughs> Russell says, come on, use your imagination. Laura says, all right, I've got a great imagination. I see a bridge by a stream, but it's just my imagination. Yeah, Hal Putoff was at a little park by a little stream with a little bridge. Mm-hmm. Laura Dickens was upset. <laughs> yeah. After she regained her composure, she decided that Russell Targ had somehow subliminally implanted the image of a bridge and a stream before the experiment. So she wanted to do it again, but this time without Russell Targ in the room. It worked. She hit the site. When they drove her to the site, she decided that they uh, saw her drawing and then took her to the nearest place that looks like the drawing. Yeah. It took yet another test where Putoff and Targ told her where they were, like told her where they were before they saw the drawing that she made for her to finally admit, my God, it really works. And Laura Dickens would go on to become one of the best remote viewers that SRI ever had. Holy shit. Yeah. And so that's just to show that capital S skeptics are just as zealous as any other type of true believer. And it's something to keep in mind always. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of people have a fucking agenda, whether it's for something or against something, you know. But while remote viewing definitely worked, according to the confines of this story. (laughs) Yes, within these cozy... These confines? I mean, um, I I think so. I've seen enough shit. white walls that are padded that we can throw ourselves (laughs) against. We're in a fine house. None of these walls are padded. There's just a lot of headless mannequins around here. (laughs) There are. You know, it's fucking weird. And heads without bodies. Mm Mm-hmm. They're not going to know what the fuck we're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) It's an accurate statement, though. It is an accurate statement. (laughs) You have mannequins in your basement. I do. Yes. Skeletons in your closet. <laughs> Literally. Um, okay. Not all these fucking people are lying. No one got rich off this. Yeah. Except Yuri Geller. Right. That was going to happen anyway. 
Yeah, any money was to like fund the research. So yeah, I mean, they got paid. You know, like, yeah, they got paid scientist money. Right. They didn't get paid fucking televangelist money. No. <laughs> they didn't get fucking Jim Baker money. Oh, like. <laughs> but yeah. So while remote viewing worked for Kit Green, the CIA guy, uh, spooky CIA guy, the spooky spook. Yeah. The only remote viewer who had ever been useful in an operational sense was Pat Price. Like, yeah, these tricks are all neat. But the only dude who was reliable that we could actually use when we needed information, we needed to know we could trust it, was Pat Price. And he got got by somebody in a fucking Vegas casino. Yeah. Yeah. They're missing their cream. Yeah. They're definitely missing their cream. And like the CIA at this point is starting to have its own problems with credibility anyhow by the mid-1970s. See, at this point, some of the CIA's own spooky skeletons were being dragged out of the closet, namely MKUltra. Mm-hmm. Like, this is when the public starts to become aware of MKUltra. Yeah. Right. Most people know MKUltra as that time the CIA ate acid, but it was more like that time the CIA locked prisoners in black sites and kept them on LSD for up to a year straight and used psychological torture programs in an attempt to wipe the personality of the prisoner, um, which works, by the way. It's yeah. just you, you can't replace it with anything. Is that that's the that's the trick, right? Yeah. <laughs> Oops. Um, now we just have a mindless drone. Yeah. Yeah. You no. Know, then you just have someone who's fucking catatonic. Yeah. And totally destroyed. Which is why shit like Project Monarch is so funny to me because the actual shit is so much weirder and so much darker. Yeah. It's like way more out of a horror movie. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that stuff's all starting to come to light. Right. And all the rumors about MK Ultra, what, what were they doing? I feel like I don't know if like the acid part was just because, oh, drugs are scary and crazy. Like, I don't really know how much that was focused on back in the day. I know that's what most people know it as. Okay? Yeah. Probably especially if it was just the acid stuff they were known for. Like the CIA definitely didn't want to be associated with the giggle factor. Yeah. Right. The giggle factor. The giggle factor of psychics and Ingo Swan. And this led to. The CIA leaving the contract with SRI to expire, not renewing it, and put off Targ and Swan to have to go off begging for money. Mm, the boys. Yeah. Left on their own. Left on their own. On the doorstep S- of the church. I mean, you know, Stuart, though, the CIA doesn't leave. Yeah. They never leave once they've got you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> You're theirs forever. Yeah. So eventually, Hal put off hooked up with a dude named Dale Graff, which is probably a familiar name to some folks. He was a science officer in the Navy. He'll show up again later on. He's another fucker that's associated with the UFO shit. Okay. Another member of the aviary, uh. as it's referred to in conspiracy literature. Mm-hmm. Right. The group of the, sci- the, the scientists and science associated and intel people who know the real shit about something. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know what. Don't they we don't have know a big idea. They don't know what either. Yeah. <laughs> they're just the guys that were associated with the weird shit. Yeah. But they're all here in this story. And I do have a whenever one of them comes up, I'm just gonna play this just to let you guys know that it's one of the birdmen. Okay. Yeah, Excellent. I'm just gonna do okay. that. Yeah. The aviary. The aviary. I love it. Yeah. I was compelled to try and make that sound, but I think I've made enough. <laughs> You've, haven't you done enough? Yeah, I've done enough <laughs> for the evening. <laughs> <laughs> so Hal Putoff hooks up with Dale Graff, a science officer in the Navy who will show up again later on. He was Dale Graff was fascinated with remote viewing and hired SRI for a couple projects. 
This would earn the ire of a Navy undersecretary named Sam Kozlov, who would go on to who would go on a crusade to kill not just this contract, which was worth a hundred thousand dollars, but any contract the Navy attempted to sign with SRI. Oh, that's how seriously the opponents to this that's shit took vindictive. it. Yeah, and he's not the only dude who would be that vindictive. Huh. Yeah. Despite these setbacks, Putoff did manage to cobble together enough funding to sustain the program for a few years. 30000 here, 40000 from the author of Jonathan Livingston Siegel. Okay. $50,000 here. Yeah. You know, if you go asking people for money, they'll probably give it to you. Somebody will. Please. <laughs> <laughs> In 1977, an article by Jonathan Wilhelm uh, showed up in the Washington Post about the government's research into psychic phenomena. Mm-hmm. Wilhelm cited some people who absolutely believed it, but his tone was cautiously skeptical. The day after the article was published, CIA director Stansfield Turner was asked about the program at a press conference. He played it down, making it seem like it was a fruitless exercise conducted only in response to Russian psi research. He said they did once have someone who seemed to show psychic ability, definitely referring to Pat Price. Turner continued then with a smirk, but he died and we haven't heard from him since. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just smirking. Yeah, we had a psychic one, but he died and we haven't heard from him since. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was that. For another decade and a half, not much else was said about SRI and psychic spying. Well, a whole decade, huh? Decade and a half, just about. From wow. like 77 to early 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For all appearances, it seemed like just one more kooky thing those wild and crazy guys the CIA had cooked up that didn't amount to anything. In truth, the psychic spying program only went deeper underground. You know, it makes sense. Yeah, it definitely does. <laughs> it kind of isn't that what everybody suspects? Mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah, MK Ultra ended. They're not doing any more experiments. Yeah, yeah well, they just saw it was bad to mess around with that. They wouldn't. Never. But it, it would never happen that some guy was like, you know, listen, listen. That was all bad, but like, there's valuable data here. We can do it ethically this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and more secret. Yeah, no one has to know. Yeah. <laughs> The program also spread, um, and not just went underground, it spread. In 1977, military intelligence agencies were undergoing big shifts that were really, that are really, really confusing, and I'm going to spare you all the pain of having to sort through all the acronyms and the who's who and the what's what and the shit. Yeah. It is important to distinguish that CIA is not part of the military. Important distinction. That is, it's super important. There's the DIA, the, the Defense Intelligence Agency. Right. And there's, you know, there's Air Force intelligence, there's Army intelligence, there's all this shit. There's so many intelligence agencies in the U.S. Some of them are military, some are civilians, some are the fucking CIA, whatever that is. (laughs) Okay, so 1977, Army intelligence was merged with the Army Security Agency, uh, which was the internal intelligence thing, police and the internal shit. Oh, the Army Intelligence. Okay. So they merged it together to form INSCOM, the Intelligence and Security Command. Okay. Oh, all right. Okay. INSCOM. I'm imagining like a Russian nesting doll. Yeah, it's exactly what like, it is. Full of its, uh, we need the police to do to be the police of the police. Mm-hmm. Like, you know. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fucking insane Byzantine labyrinth of bureaucracy. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's like, a full page explaining the merges and the shake on oh, them. Just like, it would, fuck that. You could tell me, but it would just... Whoop. Like, what I just said is wrong. 
but it's correct enough. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know. You get the gist. So after this whole big shakeup, a young army intelligence officer named Skip Atwater took over an interagency security intelligence operation at Fort Meade, Maryland. Okay. So this is making sure that there's no security holes in in the army, Mm -hmm. right? Making sure that no one can breach, there's no threats coming in, shit, rooting out any moles and stuff. And uh, Skip Atwater was directly under uh, one General Ed Thompson. Uh, and when he got to Fort Meade, Skip Atwater discovered that his predecessor at Fort Meade had been interested in parapsychology. Well, what do you know? Yeah. And someone gave him a book by none other than Hal Putoff and Russell Targ called Mind Reach. Right? Now, Skip Atwater also had paranormal experiences as a child, and he'd heard rumors that the CIA was up to some wacky shit at SRI. But, like, now he found out about everything we just talked about. Yeah. He read the scientist's book and shit, and he's like, oh, what the fuck? Well, he started to think that maybe Army intelligence should investigate this as an OPSEC matter. Like, if this is real, he didn't probably didn't know about Pat Price, Mm -hmm. but he basically inferred, like, if this is real, people can read our classified shit. Yeah. Like, that's a huge security hole. So he wanted to investigate it to see whether there was any truth to it. And if so, did it pose a security threat? It would cost almost nothing. And if it turned out there was nothing there, well, all the better. And here's Atwater telling the story uh, much later on. As a counterintelligence agent, I was one of those guys that goes around, knocks on the door and asks questions about your friend who's joined the army, he's got a good job and tell me bad things about him or something. And I was in the business of doing security kind of work and counterintelligence kind of work. And I stumbled over this book called Mind Reach. I put off in Targ, and he held it up earlier. And I said, my goodness, this sounds very familiar to me. I, this makes a lot of sense. It sounds like, you know, all the things I did in childhood and so forth and so on. But now I've got this job and the scientists are looking at this, this is dangerous stuff. In all the security things I've done all over the world, I've been to Asia, South America, all over the United States, and all the security things I did with people had nothing to do with how to protect yourself against this thing called remote viewing. And here were these guys writing about it for anybody to find out about and read about. So I, I'll skip over some details. I eventually went to my bosses and said, you know, we should do something about this. And I discovered in my safe drawer when I took over an office, they gave me an office as a young lieutenant, and I opened the bottom drawer, and here were three classified documents on remote viewing and the work of the Soviets in the Project Scanate down out at SRI. And I said, my goodness, look at this. And I took it in to Major Keenan, my boss, and said, sir, I found these in my drawer. And he said, oh, do you know anything about that? And I said, Well, as a matter of fact, he said, oh, good. Well, General Thompson was very interested in that. Why don't you be in charge of that from now on? (laughs) Some people will call that serendipity, you know, accidents. I think arrangements were made. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He says thank you and looks up at the sky because Skip Atwater, during while he was saying that, he was saying that as the president of the Monroe Institute. Ah. Yes. Wow. Which is a bit of a spoiler, but I thought it's actually like, okay. we'll see where Skip Atwater goes with this. Yeah. Because if you remember the Monroe Institute, the gateway experience, uh-huh. uh, 
I remember. Yes, you remember. Talking to the listener here. Yeah. <laughs> they might Talking to the listener. Yeah, the Monroe Institute plays, teaches astral projection, all this shit. There's a document that gets passed around the internet about once a year. Uh, uh, you know, the CIA's remote viewing program. That, that's all they know is this report that someone made when they went to the Monroe, Monroe Institute. Episode three is going to be, there's a lot of Monroe. But Skip Atwater, who is now just this army intelligence guy at Fort Meade, he ends up, by the end of this, the president of the Monroe Institute. So, that's fun. Mm. Yeah. So, Skip Atwater sends this idea up the chain of command and amazingly receives little to no pushback. Lands on the desk of Major General Ed Thompson. He's already interested in the paranormal and knew about SRI's research. Uh, Thompson was down with Atwater's, Atwater's idea, mainly because he sure as shit didn't want the CIA of all people having exclusive access to psychic powers. Yeah. That was like the biggest reason for like, we can't just let those guys have that. Psychic powers for everybody. And again, like all the intelligence agencies are at war with each other. Mm-hmm. It's fucking wild. So this would be the start of the second wave of psychic spying. And on the army's side, it was first codenamed Gondola Wish, then Grill Flame. Yeah. Then Center Lane, and then finally Sunstreak. And they're all weird. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. The army side of this shit should be left with the scientists. I'll just say yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, so the Atwater got this little shitty office. He had to uh, source the carpets and furniture himself. Oh. And he was assigned a commanding officer, Major Scotty Watt, who had gotten himself placed on the shit list after striking a fellow officer for insulting his wife several years prior. <laughs> wow, that's very topical. Atwater. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Atwater was told that Watt was assigned this, that Watt was assigned because he had so very little to lose. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. All right. So just the, the type of man that you want to work with. Yeah. A volatile dude with nothing to lose. Yep. <laughs> In a shitty little office with psychics. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, so Skip Atwater couldn't put up a hiring psychic sign at like the local diner. This thing was meant to be a super duper top secret special access program. So they built a very rough psychological profile of what makes a good psychic. You know, artistic talent, visual spatial intelligence, and creativity. Mm-hmm. They got these traits from SRI. They called them up, asked them, like, what would you say makes a good psychic? And they were like, well, honestly, everyone can do it. But like, all right, so who are the best? And it's like, well, I guess they kind of fit this really loose profile. Yeah. And, uh. But put off and target also said, like, if you were limited to questions to ask them, like, the number one question to ask was if they had ever had any paranormal experiences. Mm. Like, that is the, that's the one question to ask. Um, yeah. But again, all of it's super rough. And on top of that, they needed intelligence people too, not like undisciplined crystal gazers, right? They needed to both be psychic as fuck and like actual intelligence analysts they need to know how to analyze the shit they were seeing if they had data they need to know how to interpret that mm-hmm. and not fucking tell anybody yeah so after two rounds of interviews atwater and watt ended up with a dozen people who would be army intelligence's first psychic spies so after two rounds of interviews atwater and watt ended up with a dozen people who would be army intelligence's first psychic spies they told the candidates that the program was experimental it could be shuttered at any time and that they'd only be doing this a few hours a week and it would officially remain at their previous posts. Basically, I bet, the, I bet the interview questions were interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the dudes said 
that like the first interview had like 30 people. Mm-hmm. First thing Skip Atwater asked was, how many of you raise your hand if you're interested in parapsychology, in psychic shit? About half the people raised their hand and he said, you can all leave. <laughs> yeah. Which is it's a tough line to walk, you know, but it makes sense. Like if it was like tangibly real, you would want people who didn't believe or weren't interested, not didn't believe, but weren't interested. No agenda. You know, right. Well, if you know, they got their dozen psychics, they're like, I'm going to do this a few hours a week. We're going to get training right now. And shortly thereafter, it just got stopped dead in its tracks. The shadow of MK Ultra bit the program in the ass again. Word came from on high that the RV program had been designated a, in quote, human use experimentation, which meant that they needed the informed consent of the participants and various medical personnel needed to sign off on the program. So it was like delayed months because they were like, whoa, 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 whoa. They ruined the party for all of us. We yeah. have to actually bring doctors in to make sure they're for just having a psychically look at stuff doesn't matter. Yeah. When it resumed, the group was reduced to just six. It's not a lot of subjects. No. Uh, you've got Mel Riley. Joe McMonagall, Fern Govan, Ken Bell, Nancy Stern, and Harley Trent. Wow. Those are some names. <laughs> yeah. Atwater and Watt sent these six people to SRI for psychic training and evaluation. And they asked uh, Putoff and Targ to determine the three best remote viewers who okay. would be made the permanent members and the other three would be sent home. They were really just trying to go for, they were trying, they're after that Pat Price. You know, mm-hmm. they didn't want a whole battalion. They wanted well, one dude. Fern better be one of them. Nah. Damn it. I, th- well, I think he's there for a while, but he's not the important one. Put off and Targ concluded that all six had good enough skills for operational work. They're like, no, all six are great. The first office at Fort Meade was an incredibly plain, completely unassuming space, but large enough and comfortable. Bit of a problem. It was right underneath a bathroom. So oh. it was like way too common for the remote viewers to be like, you know, about to start for the like the first time trying to remote view and shit. Yeah. And they're like in trance and then just just a flushing toilet oh breaks God. them out of their reverie. It just happened over and over. Yeah. <laughs> it was also like right on a May th- main throughway through Fort Meade. One day they were in the middle of practicing remote viewing only to be jump scared by fucking howitzers saluting a visiting general on parade. Remember how Ingo Swan just ripped that telephone out of the wall because he thought that it might ring and break him out of his chance? Mm-hmm. What would he have done if he got woken up by a flushing toilet? I don't think I would wake up. What? <laughs> <laughs> what would Ingo have done? Oh. Hmm. He would have just like, he would just started pissing on somebody. Yeah. <laughs> he, would yeah. Have, he would have done something crazy. Throwing his cowboy hat. Yeah. Stepped on it. God damn it. Not again. Yeah. Yeah. So they moved from the large, plain, but comfortable office to two very small, even more unassuming and nondescript than the last offices. The only clue that something weird was going on was this mural of a swirling spiral galaxy on one of the walls painted by one of the remote viewers. Cool. Yeah. 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 I want one of those. These guys, this period right here sounds fun as fucking hell. Mm -hmm. Because they're just doing this for fun. They're not... They're not dealing with the CIA. They're dealing with Skip Atwater. We already heard him talk. I'm not scared of that guy. Yeah. He's fine. Um, they're painting a galaxy. No one knows what they're doing. For a couple hours, they're pretending to be psychics and shit. Apart from the standard remote viewing exercises that are like very similar to the stuff we've already covered, Atwater concocted some like get-rich-quick schemes as well. They tried winning the lottery through associative remote viewing. 
As one would. Yeah. So, you know, like, because it's really hard to see numbers and letters, you know, in a remote viewing session, use this thing called associative remote viewing, where instead of trying to view the numbers, you try to view an object that represents the number. Mm -hmm. So like Atwater picked, you know, 10 or yeah, 10 uh, objects that each represented a digit. And then he would ask the remote viewers to view 10 objects that he's going to show them on a certain day. And if any of them viewed the objects, like wrote down the objects that he had picked for the, to represent the numbers. Yeah. Like bear, like teddy bear, can, mannequin head, you know, something like that. <laughs> then he'd go like, oh shit, those are actually the objects. So I'll put a bet on uh, that string of object numbers. Yeah. Never worked. Fun though. Very fun. They also tried chasing down some buried treasure that some old eccentric wow. billionaire had buried. <laughs> oh my God. I saw a Craigslist post not too long ago that was like these two dudes looking for someone to join them in their like treasure hunt for like. Oh shit. And I was like, man, I hope they had the time of their fucking Yeah, lives. dude, I hope so. I hope so. Uh, yeah, they didn't get rich, these guys. It yeah. sounds fun, though. Definitely Super does. Super fun. Rich in experiences and memories. Yeah. It's having fun with the boys. Yeah. And what's your name, Nancy? And Nancy. <laughs> you know, eventually, like, they weren't doing anything operational and shit. Eventually, there was another reorganization, and the six viewers were split into two groups. One remained doing... OPSEC work, operational security, and the other, composed of Mel Riley, Ken Bell, and Joe McMonagall, were put on offensive remote viewing. Actual operational, more time, people's lives are at risk, remote viewing. Okay. Getting serious. Yeah. Army Intelligence and the CIA wanted to use both groups of remote viewers, SRI and Fort Meade, as a failsafe. If both groups saw the same thing, then the intel was probably solid. When they weren't working on the same thing, SRI on the whole would handle scientific stuff and Fort Meade would be operations, right? I'm not quite sure how the CIA comes back into just having SRI by the balls, but they do. Yeah. Um, Mm. You know, they they don't go away. SRI likes cock and ball torture. Maybe. Yeah. Why you got to say that about these guys? (laughs) You say grab them by the balls. Well, yeah. Yeah. probably do scientologists get into weird things <laughs> yeah i bet now from the fort meade like operations there's a ton of anecdotes about their cases in the book remote viewers i'm not going to get into a lot of them it's real similar to what we've seen you know I, I really feel like that book just stacks every example it can as just like a way to just beat you over the head with it yeah like, see it look at all these stories i'm getting them for all these different people it's mm-hmm. a real thing you know yeah, it's a lot of real similar stuff. They had about as many successes as they did failures, but their successes were quite fucking impressive. And one of the wildest ones was when a CIA had heard word that a KGB agent had fled Norway and went to South Africa. The CIA wanted to get him before the fucking Scandinavians did. But now his commie ass was in a South African prison. And he wasn't talking. They assigned psychic Ken Bell to the case. Uh-huh. Yeah, he described accurately where this KGB agent was being held, which the CIA already knew, but that gave the go-ahead to go further. Because they're like, okay, he's got the target. Mm -hmm. Ken Bell found that this KGB dude had serious psychic barriers around him. There was a point at which he just couldn't push through. Right. So Atwater suggested a different tactic, psychic interrogation. Oh. Yeah. Ken Bell agreed. So Atwater requested some details on this poor bastard. 
CIA gave Atwater the names of the KGB dude's family. And so Ken Bell goes into trance and he makes psychic contact with this guy. And he starts beaming shit into his head like, your daughter Svetlana wonders when you'll be home. She misses her daddy. Your son Sergei misses you. Eventually, Bell reports that the KGB agent had tears in his eyes and he can hear thoughts coming out of dude's head. I promised Sergei I'd take him skiing, to which Ken Bell replied, Yes, you promised. You need to go home quickly to take Sergei skiing. KGB dude responded, I need to go home. This is supposed to be my last tour anyway. Like he just fucking... Dude's barriers shatter. Wow. He fucking guilt trips this dude into letting... And this is just like a psychic communication? This is dude just in Fort Meade, laying on a, like a psychiatrist at a therapist's couch. Yeah. KGB dude's in a South African prison. Right. Yeah. So this is taking place in the... Purely on the astral. Yeah. Yeah. So dude's barriers break, and Ken Bell starts asking him operational questions. And he learns about a pocket calculator that this dude had. And this is like, this is that classic Cold War fucking spy versus spy shit. They used to use pocket calculators to hide chips with data on them. And they could just stick a little data chip in a pocket calculator. Another one of the psychics, Mel Riley, also had a strong impression of a pocket calculator. So they're like, okay. Now, they brought that up to the South Africans, and they denied that the man had a calculator on him. But after the CIA went, come on, they were like, yeah, okay, yeah, he he for sure did have a pocket calculator on him, and we were lying to you about it that he didn't, because it probably has some really interesting stuff on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That story's really weird to me. It makes me feel weird. The idea that intrusive, guilty thoughts... Could be the fucking... Could be implanted. Could be army intelligence. Yeah, I, I, just, I just can't think about Yeah, that. don't. Don't. Nope. Yeah. Yeah, probably best not to. Yeah, no. Yeah. This other dude there, the last of the three operational psychics, Joe McMonagle, was absolutely the best one in a million remote viewer Fort Meade ever had. He was a short, bull-necked man who looks like a caricature of a military dude. He's got the widest shoulders I've ever seen. His neck looks like a bull's neck. Yeah. He's an army dude. And he was nearing retirement when he was brought in as a remote viewer. And he, Joe McMonagall, performed more remote viewing tasks than anyone else in the history of the programs. He was remote viewer 001. One of his special talents was seeing radiation. Oh. Radio frequency waves showed up in Joe's subconscious as orange, while nuclear radiation showed up as green, which is pretty useful. Yeah. Yeah. That was just one of his talents. He was also... Really good at pulling analytical information in a way that only Pat Price had been. He could actually see numbers. He could see words and shit. And as a kid, Joe McMonagall experienced all sorts of psychic events. Once he saw a vision of a ghostly apparition after falling asleep playing hide-and-seek, this glowing lady like took him flying up all around and down into a swamp of some kind, and she told Joe that he would end up in the military, fighting a war in a far-off land where many would be killed, but he would make it back. And... She showed him his future all the way up until the year 1970 when his timeline fell into a deep, dark well. In 1970, Joe had a heart attack and had a near-death experience that seemed to only enhance his psychic powers. That was the deep, dark well. Mm -hmm. I have a quote about that near-death experience. Joe, his wife, and a friend were were in an Austrian village like having a nice lunch and washing it down with rum. Mm. And then... uh, McMonagall suddenly collapsed, swallowed his tongue, stopped breathing, and went into cardiac arrest. He found himself standing upright in some kind of -of out-of-body state, looking down at his actual physical dying body. His buddy performed CPR on him. 
With every compression of the click, uh, with every compression of his chest, Joe felt a click, a stab of pain, and for a moment saw out of his physical eyes again before switching back to his ghostly observer state. Uh. The paramedics come, put him in the ambulance, drive him away, and Joe's ghost flies alongside of the vehicle, like swooping in and out of the power lines, like fucking Buzz Lightyear in Toy Story. Mm-hmm. You know, so he gets to the hospital and they bring him to the emergency room. They tried doing the defibrillator and shit. Joe began a near-death experience uh, with all the usual motifs, Schnabel writes. And quote, he felt himself moving up through a tunnel. He was enveloped by a white light, the same light from his reoccurring nightmares. But it wasn't death. It was God, radiating unconditional love. God told Joe to go back to physical reality. Get out of here, Joe. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't going to die. Joe resisted. It felt just great where he was. But then the scene faded. He sat upright in his hospital bed, crying, wishing he could go back. There wasn't any evidence of serious damage on his brain scans, but McMonagall increasingly seemed like a new person. He would be talking to someone, and it would seem as if he were conducting a two-track conversation, one auditory and the other telepathic. Were they just voices in his head? Was he going crazy? Reality and imagination seemed to be colliding everywhere. He would lie down in his living room, on his living room couch for a nap, and suddenly would find himself relocated with technicolor clarity to a beach on a southern ocean, or to a desert, or once to a temple in Japan where he floated through the trees, mesmerized by the creaking sound from the wheel on a wheelbarrow being pushed down a dirt path. Uh, and after this, Joe found his worldview changing dramatically. Like as, it towards as, the mystical. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and he kept thinking back to that time in 1957 where he met a glowing woman mm-hmm. who told him his future up until the point he died. Like, what the fuck did that mean? Right? I mean, and All right. That wasn't the only crazy shit that Joe experienced as a as a dude before this. He also had a really close encounter with a UFO. Him oh. and a friend, uh, I believe it was on Barbados, and like they saw a fucking big ass glowing UFO, and they experienced all the classic physical mothman ass symptoms. Meaning mm-hmm. sunburn, conjunctivitis, that shit, the radiation exposure uh-huh. stuff, which shows up time and fucking time again. You know, which and it's really creepy. It's super creepy. Yeah. Um, all right. Joe wasn't remote viewer zero zero one for nothing. I'll tell a couple of Joe stories real quick. One session had Joe keeping psychic tabs on a clandestine arms deal that was going on between the U.S. and uh, I believe it was some Soviet defectors. The U.S. was buying a Soviet tank off a cargo ship to reverse engineer it. Inscom didn't trust the people we were buying it from, so Joe remote-viewed the whole operation. He gets out of the trance, that's floating around in there, and what he sees is a fucking pirate takeover of this ship, right? Dudes with guns and face masks swarming it. It's a whole scene. And he's like, oh my god, this is bad, right? But like, he looks around, he's aware of the captain's emotions. The dude's calm. The captain feels like everything's going according to plan. Joe realized that the pirate takeover was theater. It was a cover. For the tank deal. Oh. Yeah. Whether the pirates were U.S. special ops or whatever, he didn't know. But yeah, shortly thereafter, U.S. had a brand new fucking tank. Well, yeah. Looky there. Don't know if that happened at all, but. It's a fun story. It's a fun story. One of Joe's biggest successes, though, was when he viewed a brand new class of Soviet submarine months before it was glimpsed by regular intel. Uh. He described the Soviet Typhoon-class nuclear submarine before anyone knew it was operational. 
And here's Joe McMonigle talking about that a bit. The building was uh, hundreds of yards from the water. What I decided through remote viewing uh, was that they were probably constructing a new submarine. And the submarine was unique in that it had twin hulls. No, the hulls were actually stuck together this way. So it was a twin-hulled, very wide submarine. It was half again larger than any submarine in existence at the time. It had uh, dozens of new capabilities. And I said, they're going to launch in 120 days. And this was all disagreed with by the senior officer from the CIA. He made arrangements to, to look at the area 114 days later. And uh, they, in fact, had launched the largest submarine ever built in history. It's called the TK-089, the Typhoon-class submarine. The only response we got from that individual was, it was a lucky guess. And that individual was Robert Gates. Robert Gates, uh, defense secretary. He's a dude. A dude. He's a fucking dude. Like, yeah, he was an intelligence guy. And he was the 22nd United States Secretary of Defense from uh, 2006 to 2011. Oh. That's pretty fucking impressive, though, right? Yes. Yeah. Dude nailed the time that it would be launching. Oh, there's uh, there's another clip from another interview with Joe McMonagall talking about even more, you know, craziness around, around that. Let's take a listen. I was able to describe a new submarine that the Russians were building. Um when it, this was a target that the National Security Council had been looking at for almost two years. It was a building that had something being constructed in it, and they couldn't tell what was being constructed. Uh, but railroad cars and materials were going in one door, and the cars were coming out empty in the other. Uh, their best hypothesis was that there was some new armored vehicle being produced. Uh, they never would accept the submarine idea because the building was not connected to water. The building was disconnected from the, the water. But my submarine, uh, the guess that I had made about the submarine was actually taken to the National Security Council by a, an admiral. Uh, his name was Stewart, Admiral Stewart. When Admiral Stewart came back from there, he brought the materials back and he said they refused to accept them because they said they were total fantasy. And I was a little bit miffed by that. And Stewart actually noticed that. He said, I think I just made you mad and angry, Joe. And I said, what makes you think I'm angry? And he said, there's a red line going up the side of your neck. Yeah, so, you know, basically there's this building it's not next to the water mm-hmm. he's like they're building the world's largest submarine in there <laughs> the fuck they are yeah and yet and yet that's exactly what they were building yep so okay here's robert gates talking about that program did you at any time feel that this was worth the taxpayers money well, all I can say is that in the in the 20 years or 25 years that I was perhaps in a position to be aware, uh, I don't know of a single instance uh, where it is documented that this kind of activity contributed in any significant way to a policy decision or even to informing policymakers about uh, important information. 
Dr. Barrett's son by Robert Gates. He was director of the CIA for a time. We're going to play that clip again. I want yeah. you to just hear that sentence he just said. Anytime feel that this was worth the taxpayers' money? Well, all I can say is that in the, in the 20 years or 25 years that I was perhaps in a position to be aware, uh, I don't know of a single instance uh, where it is documented that this kind of activity contributed in any significant way to a policy decision or even to informing policymakers about uh, important information. There's like six outs he gives himself in that sentence. Yeah. In the time that I might have been aware, it contribute in a significant way where it's documented uh, that would inform policy decisions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. <sighs> yeah, I mean, all I can say about Robert Gates' answer right there is... Uh, Fucking amen. CIA man. Yeah. Fucking A, man. <laughs> if what Robert Gates was almost saying was true, that it didn't matter, it was never important or whatever, they probably wouldn't have given Joe so many medals. Yeah. Here's, um, this is Gary Langford, one of the SRI uh, psychics. I'm familiar with that quote of Gates, there's nothing, we, we, we closed the program because it didn't amount to anything. Let me just read this one thing I've got here. Joe got the Legion of Merit, and Joe, upon his retirement, got this. While with his command, he used his talents and expertise in the execution of more than 200 missions, addressing over 150 essential elements of information. These EEI, essential elements of information, contained critical intelligence reported at the highest echelons of our military and government, including such national level agencies as the Joint Chiefs of Staff, DIA, NSA, CIA, DEA, and the Secret Service, producing crucial and vital intelligence unavailable from any other source. Well, that sounds pretty important to me. Yes. If that music didn't convince you, I don't know what will. Yeah, the, that this movie, Third Eye Spies, it, it's a little heavy-handed with the stylization. Mm-hmm. Reminds me of a... A little bit of a Jeremy Corbell film. Yeah. Yeah. Which isn't the way to do it, but it does have some good clips and stuff. They should just let the guys speak for them fucking selves. Mm -hmm. Don't oversell it. That's the whole reason no one takes this shit seriously. Yeah. Don't oversell it. But yeah, over 200 missions of crucial intelligence. Like that's serious shit. Yeah. And like, okay, I should say this because in a lot of these subjects, It'd be very easy to say, like, well, do we know that that's actually real? Did he actually receive those medals? He could just be lying. I bet they'd deny he ever worked for him or something. I don't know if they would, but it's pretty important to understand that, like, the dude who was just talking was at Stanford Research Institute, the second largest, like, military military think tank. Yep. Right? These are not just average Joes. Eh. They have credentials. They have credentials. And like every one of these dudes in this story have written their own books and shit. Some conflicting details, as there always are. Yeah. You know? If, if there weren't, then that would be suspicious. Exactly. Um, but there are so many books about this. A lot of them written 
from the perspective of one of the one of these guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's not secret anymore because of how many fucking people were involved, and they're all coming out and saying this kooky shit, right? But they're all saying it. Back at SRI, right? They had this encrypted fax machine below the remote viewing labs that would just like sometimes spin up and then spit out a mission, mm. which is fun. Like they hear it going, oh shit, we got a target. Yeah. Uh, one day in May 1978, Hal Putoff received a remote viewing target from General Ed Thompson. It concerned a Soviet bomber that had gone down somewhere in Zaire. The Pentagon wanted to recover it before the Soviets could and wanted some help from the remote viewers. By this point, Putoff had more than a dozen remote viewers to choose from. Among those was, of course, Ingo Swan, a woman named Hella Hammond, and a 30-year-old computer scientist named Gary Langford, who we just heard from. Langford was particularly adept at viewing high-tech targets. That was his talent. And he had a precision that made him seem like he had the potential to reach Pat Price levels of Psychic Spy. So he was chosen for the Zaire job. Within minutes, Langford found himself deep in the jungle next to a river. He saw the plane mostly submerged and sketched it out with surprising detail. Now, at the same time... Uh, Air Force physicist Dale Graff. Yeah, I remember yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah. See, he was, he also, apart from being an Air Force uh, physicist, he also taught parapsychology classes on the side. So badass. <laughs> I love it. And he had his own small group of remote viewers at Wright Patterson Air Force Base just down the road from Fort Meade, Maryland. They all got their little remote viewing game. Yeah. Well, these guys weren't official in any way. This was just, these were hobbyists. Ragtag. Yeah. Uh, but they they tasked Dale Graff with trying to find their down plane too. Like, why don't you guys take a look at this? So he tasked his best remote viewer, a woman named Frances Bryan, who had a particular talent for finding things. Now, Bryan's sketch wasn't as detailed as Langford's, but it was a better overhead view of the same location. River, all the ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, Graf matched the drawing to the general area and the summary of the two remote viewers' findings was sent via the Pentagon to the CIA's station chief in Kinshasa. God damn it. I just, I, there's just something about like saying, you know, sending the information to the CIA's station chief in Kinshasa. That's just fucking the coolest thing. Yeah. I just, just want to do that. It just sounds really, I just, I really wanna, fun to say. I want to send something to Kinshasa. <laughs> and the station chief wasn't impressed. The area he was given was some 70 miles west of where they thought the plane had gone down, of where the CIA thought the plane had gone down. So he asked for more precise information. Eventually, Graf was able to match Francis Bryan's drawing to a specific spot along a particular river. By the time the coordinates got there, the CIA team was already heading into the jungle to the place they believed the plane was. As they passed by the other area, the one specified by the remote viewers, they saw people carrying broken plane parts out of the jungle. So they're on their way to where they know it is. And then they see just like people that live there just like making off with a propeller. Yeah. <laughs> you know? like, I'll oh. be taking this. Yeah. Sure enough, the plane went down exactly where the remote viewers said it was for two different sets. And Stanfield Turner, CIA Director Stanfield Turner, was pleased to inform President Carter about this success. But he was nervous to tell him where the intel had come from. That nervousness was completely unfounded. When he told him, Carter wasn't shocked at all. He was already well aware of SRI and he approved of the program. He was down. He was fucking down. Uh, he would later recall the event and fuck up a lot of details uh, at a speech he gave to college students 17 years later. He had a lot. He was the president. He had a lot of other things to think about. But he said it was the one inexplicable thing he saw in his uh, his time as president. Mm. Yeah. After the Zaire operation, uh, the funding was coming in hot. 
that was the thing that like they were they were now rolling in dough. Ooh. Right? And the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, decided to roll all three RV programs, Dale Graf's, SRI, and Fort Meade into one under the grill flame banner. <laughs> Why the grill flame banner? <laughs> oh no. Grill flame. Grill flame. Do you like Gondola Wish or Grill Flame better? Gondola Wish. Really? Yeah. I like Grill Flame better. I was, I, Grill Flame just it just makes me feel like I'm at a barbecue. Yeah, I don't barbecue know. Barbecues are sick, dude. Yeah, they are. I love a barbecue, <laughs> but I'm like, what is the fuck does that have to do with remote viewing? I don't know. <laughs> Nothing. Like, what is Gondola Wish? At least I can imagine, like, I don't know, a guy in a gondola traversing, like, the canals of the mind or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I have no idea. But it just, it makes more sense to me thematically. What about Center Lane? Center Lane? I don't know. That's kind of cool. The last one is the best. Sunstreak. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's good. But yeah, it was all it was all girl flame now. There's always a little baby girl flame. <laughs> <laughs> and overseeing everything now is a former nuclear physicist named Jack Verona, whom Ingo Swan nicknamed the super god in the sky. Wow. What? Yeah, he's a fucking what other a one. Name. Yeah. So this guy is like real smart fuck. Mm-hmm. CIA. Yeah, super god. Or DIA. Yeah. He's just, he's just the invisible... They never, no one ever meets him. He's just the guy that's in their corner. He's in the sky. Running things. The invisible eye in the sky. Basically, the only role he really plays in that story is he, he defends this program very hard against the attackers. Like he's, uh, he's their protector. He's their guy. And he's also, you know. He's super God. So he better protect them. He's also deeply enmeshed in the whole UFO shit, you know, which I'll just say right now, episode three is going to be a lot about that. Oh, cool. Yeah. Can't wait. And. They also didn't just have their god. They had their own ascended master. No shit. Pat Price. Whoa, the ghost of Pat Price. See, rumors continued to swirl that Pat didn't actually die. Skip Atwater at Fort Meade even test his crew of psychics to try and find Pat Price. (laughs) And for decades, there was a story passed around that someone, the prevailing name was Hal Putoff, though he denies this, Someone actually ran into Pat Price at a shopping mall, but he quickly turned, covered his face, and walked away. Mm, now we're getting fun with it. Yeah. It's starting to unravel. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, like, he died. No, he was killed. No, he's no, still alive. No, he's still alive. Like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Shit. It's like, uh, Jim Schnabel refers to him as their Elvis. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Which, I mean, it's it's odd, and it's especially odd that, like, Skip Atwater had his remote viewers try to find him. Like, I don't know. It's... It's weird. I mean, I guess he did just disappear. Like, oh shit, he died and then they burned his body and then they told his wife. Mm-hmm. I don't know. From the descriptions of like what that dude's diet was like, if he didn't die, then he'd be dead by now. Right. You know? So back at Fort Meade, the army remote viewers were called in for help during the Iran hostage crisis, the thing that killed Jimmy Carter's chance at reelection. And this was serious shit. You know, there were Americans taken hostage in Iran. It was a big fucking deal. And... The army kind of came in and moved the remote viewers to this hotel where they would just stay and do psychic shit. This hotel was completely mouse infested. It was like a chain hotel that like looked nice on the outside. Yeah. But it was just infested with mice. Like Mel Riley was acting as the like handler for Mm. a remote viewing session. 
And he like felt a mouse run up his leg and couldn't do anything about it because he couldn't like break the dude's concentration. Oh my God. And they were also running these dudes into the fucking ground. They were making them remote view all day, every day. Yeah, that's not good for a person, I imagine. It's it's really not. No. A lot of anecdotal observations uh, from both SRI and Fort Meade definitely seem to show that like people can burn out. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can fuck people up both mentally and physically from too much psychic hullabaloo. Mm-hmm. I imagine it's very draining. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Psychic burnout, super real danger. And it, it also fucks up the results. Right. Mm-hmm. And this would end up being a huge problem on the purely military side of, of Stargate. You got to take good care of your psychics. You, you do. Feed them, water them. Yeah, you you got to baby them. Yeah. Yeah. You, they're, they're, they're delicate. Mm-hmm. Except for Joe McMonagle. Yeah. <laughs> he can hold his own. He can hold his own. And like throughout this period, this was really tough on these guys. They were working so hard and they did view certain very specific uh, elements of this. Like they did view a lot of specifics very correctly. They were unable to see the shady ass deal that Uncle Ronnie made with the Iranians. Uh, see, they missed a big one there. See Iran Contra. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a big one. The whole OPSEC side of things should have been a little more. Yeah. yeah. Miss that one, boys. Yeah. But it was tough on him. Like when it when the rescue mission failed and shit, some of the viewers were like in tears and stuff. It was like, it was just a really hard period for him. And with the arrival of Uncle Ronnie in the White House, the times were changing. Uh, the command at INSCOM was changing and all of the full-time remote viewers could soon be transferred just as like part of their contracts, you know. Um, and most were. Only Skip Atwater, Scotty Watt, and Joe McMonagall stayed on. Their protector up the chain of command, Ed Thompson, was also being transferred. He would be replaced by one Major General Albert Stubbledean III. Come on. A pretty weird fellow. Albert Stubbledean? Albert Stubbledean. Wow. Uh, may have been one of those people whose minds are so open, their brains fall out. <laughs> and also... Yeah, another one. Ah. Yes. And... Stubbledean and a fellow named John Alexander. Remember that name? No. Project Monarch brought him up. I did? Yeah. I forget why. Well, because he's another one of these fucking caw-caw motherfuckers. Ah. Yeah. He's another dude that shows up in every weird story. Damn. Yeah. So Stubbledean and John Alexander would host spoon-bending parties for military press, which, like, scared the shit out of a lot of them. Because, like, one of these parties is, like, He's describing some general who's like spending half an hour looking at this fucking spoon and waiting for it to bend. And then he like looks away for a second and the spoon just flops over. He looks back and it flops back up. Yeah. He looks away and it flops over. Yeah. They talk about weird shit like that happening. Yeah. Not just like. Floppy spoon. Yeah. Like fucking flopping spoon. Yeah. Not just a, you know. Right. A talk show trick or something. Right. Mm-hmm. We'll catch up with these fellows next week along with some other fucking Looney Tunes. Oh, God. Military dudes are insane. Yeah, I can believe it. Yeah. <laughs> By the end of the Carter administration, so at this point, the budget of SRI was now between 500000 and $1 million per year. The stable of remote viewers had increased to around 20. 
They were <laughs> all in their little barn getting fed hay. Yeah. In, the, in their little stalls. Ingo Swan knows you have to treat your psychics delicately. Mm-hmm. He understands how to treat his psychics. Yeah, he's the ranch hand <laughs> passing out apples <laughs> to, to all the psychics. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Well, they were all, that's all right at this point, they were researching all sorts of fun things. Like they wired people up to EEGs and had them do psychic shit, do brain scans. They studied Joe McMonagall's out of body abilities. Mm. And they also studied like precognitive remote viewing. See in the future. Sweet. The long and short of that last one is that it's about probability. What they found was that remote viewers can see the things that are probable to happen, not the things that will happen. Like there seems to be an element of randomness, but like with... With defined timelines. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one time these guys were looking at, uh, I forget which group it was, but they were tasked with looking at a American embassy in the Soviet Union that was being constructed. The Soviets insisted that it had to be Soviet construction workers. Yeah, it has to be. It has to be. And they were like, you're going to bug it. And they're like, no, we swear we won't well, We won't bug it. Pinky promise. Like, guys, are you really... Are you? I really pull on this shit. Like, yeah. Yeah, we're really pulling on this shit. We'll double pinky promise. Yeah, yeah. So they set the remote viewers to look at the future to see where the bugs are going to be planted. At first, all the remote viewers agreed. But then, the farther out into the future they got, the remote viewers all diverged. Like, Speaking I think one of them ended up being- There paths. Yeah, basically. And it, timelines. Yeah, and it seems like the thing with the that was most probable to happen in a case of like, you know- say there's a one in 10 chance of something happening the remote viewers has the same chance of seeing that right Mm -hmm. which is i don't know it's a hard thing to explain but it's interesting um but now all these fun things are happening ingo swan isn't taking part in any of it we haven't talked about him that much yet yeah we haven't he's been locked the fuck away in his lab oh no it's this is he's having a good time in there right here is ingo's being a badass moment okay this is it this is what he gets yes okay (laughs) so Ingo was locked away in his own lab and actually doing some really cool work, or at least really complicated. He was formalizing a multi-stage process meant to bolster the signal-to-noise ratio and to develop a formalized way to train remote viewing, like, for decades to come. You know, the Hmm. process, right? Now, at this point, Ingo and Hal Puthoff concluded that psi phenomena and subliminal perception were inseparably linked. The same part of your brain that response to subliminal imagery, messaging, whatever, is the part of the brain that remote viewing takes place in. They theorize because it seems to be related. And they found that once a remote viewer interprets something, like see they, they say they see like jets of water arcing in a circle and call it a fountain, right? That interpretation or analytical overlay, as Ingo would call it, it fucks up the rest of everything else and can send the remote viewer into spirals of fantasy and imagination. Yeah. Like once you name something, once you define it, then that, you know, uh, super liminal analysis has a stronger effect on your imagination. Yeah, it's, the- it's harder not to start building a narrative right. and a story. So Swan found that as a remote viewing session went on, the aperture of the remote viewer's third eye opens up more and more, letting more information in. So his method was to try and stack that information in a way that doesn't send the remote viewer into flights of fancy. And- Swan's process, which I won't describe all the steps to it. So it's like seven and then the seven one, seventh one he shit canned and, you know, but stage one, uh, Ingo would call this the most important work he did is this first stage. He developed this technique of having the remote viewer make an ideogram or an ideogram, 
which was basically a very quick sketch as soon as the remote viewer hears the coordinates because he still will not let the coordinate thing go. Yeah. He just won't yeah. let it go. <laughs> but it's, it's his thing. It's his thing. This is a way cooler thing. Uh, it's usually, so the sketch is usually just like one line. So like if it was an image of an ocean, that line might look like a wave, mm-hmm. but it happens like instantaneously as soon as they hear like go. Yeah. Right. Which seemed to be really effective and really, really important. And from there, you go on to basic sense perceptions, white motion, s- smell of water, right? If there's an interpretation like water fountain, the remote viewer would stop and write AOL break for analytical overlay break. Aesthetic impacts like breathtaking would also be cause for a break. Next, you went to what Ingo called dimensionals, heavy, thick, small, large, etc. For a while, that was as far as Swan got, but eventually he was able to eventually he was able to formulate a couple more stages that were about the analytical details. This stage seven, which was eventually scrapped, had remote viewers saying syllables to pull out the target's name. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Like, if only I could hear that. Like, who, va, dom. Oh shit! He's looking at the Hoover Dam. Yeah. Yeah. It was shit like that, which was very rarely accurate. Uh- <laughs> You know, with this method, however flawed it might be, they had a regimen that seemed to work really well. Obviously, it wasn't the only way to do it. Don't tell Ingo that. But it was definitely a a method for reducing the imaginative noise inherent to remote viewing. You know, making it sound all clinical and and shit. And also just like having a, first you look at this, then you look at that, then you look at that. He also had a bunch of dumb Scientology-ass terminology like peacocking, AOL drive. Yes. Like... Telepathic overlay. And that's where one remote viewer would pick up erroneous data that another remote viewer had described, which actually seemed to happen all the fucking time. I bet. Yeah. So Ingo got 12 volunteers to try his new methods and they had some damn fine successes. Mm. Uh, One of his volunteers was Hal Putoff, who up to this point had not tried remote viewing himself. Yeah. He's always been in like the leader. Yeah. At Swan's insistence, he gave it a go and found he was actually pretty talented. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised either. Another of Ingo's volunteers was a filthy Frenchman mm-hmm. named Jacques Vallée. Oh. Yeah. Oh, shit. Yes, okay. yes, yes. And he, of course, is also a Birdman. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. 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 And we all know Jacques Vallée, don't we? He's the guy. He's the guy that says those aliens. Mm-hmm. Same shit as fairies. Don't know what they are. But it's the same goddamn thing. Yeah. Telling stories about these fuckers are entire. Entire history. Jacques Vallée was super interested in remote viewing. And he was like, he had advised Ingo Swan throughout a lot of this, you know, helping him out with methods. Ingo gave him half credit for like one of the things he submitted and stuff. Here's Jacques Vallée had a, the, the talk is called Consciousness Software, Remote Viewing, Early Internet Origins, a whole bunch of topics and stuff. But there's a, during the question and answer segment at the end, uh, First question is, of course, someone not really asking him about remote viewing. Yeah. Who wants to ask him about the fucking aliens? But Typical. Yeah. But Jacques Filet, I think, says something really interesting. It, he's asked, like, basically, how much does consciousness have to do with the UFO phenomenon and remote viewing, of course, because that's what we're talking about here. In, um, well, one reason I was close to the SRI research at the beginning was that um, they noticed that many of their subjects related their, you know, becoming aware of their talent 
to a light in the sky or to what you, we would call a UFO incident. Uh, I've, I've investigated a lot of, you know, I, I like, I'm, I'm still involved in UFO research, and, but I, I stay away from all the controversies because it's turned into a circus and into a battle of belief systems where nobody goes out and talks to witnesses anymore because they don't need to. You know, they expect that either the government has you know, little cadavers in the cave somewhere and they won't tell us. So you can speculate on that. You can stay in your living room and speculate on that. Or they believe whatever they believe and they believe it so strongly that they don't need to talk to witnesses anymore. Well, I like to talk to witnesses because they were there and I wasn't. And I take the time to listen to them. I track those cases over months or years. And uh, you know, I, I want to, to learn what happens in the process. It's a process. It's not an observation. It's not a point thing. No. And it's not like seeing a shooting star and saying, I saw a shooting star at, at 10 o'clock. It's, it's a process. In that process, many of the percipients, many of the observers um, will describe what can only be called psychic effects. And ufologists deny that. Most ufologists will deny that. They say, you know, these are spacecraft from another planet. They come here, they study us. You know, end of story. Uh, it, it's not that simple. Isn't that very fucking interesting? Especially the, it's not a point. It's not just one thing. It's yeah. a process. Right. Yeah, right. I mean, we've seen that. Yeah. If you're an experiencer, you, it's an ongoing thing. Mm -hmm. that, like the, your relationship with the spooky at large, right? And it's so much more complicated than just fucking spaceships from somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and so is a psychic shit. Like, ah, all right, back to Ingo. <laughs> Can't go off on the UFO tangent. Not everyone was on board with Ingo Swan's methods. Many of the viewers found them stifling and needlessly obtuse. And why the fuck was Ingo so obsessed with the goddamn coordinates? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're his thing. Yeah. Many felt that he was only holding on to the coordinates because he came up with the idea. Like, dude, yeah. you, you really don't have to prove anything anymore. Like, right. You work really hard. We know, like, a remote viewer by the name of Keith Harari was particularly incensed by all of Ingo's Ingo-ness. Yeah. One time during a session, Hal Putoff was giving Harari coordinates and Har Harari was like, Jesus Christ, why do we need to do the coordinate shit? Just fuck it. Just say target. And- Put off, shrugged, and said, target. And lo and behold, Harari was dead on. Yeah. You did not need court. You didn't need to be told anything to see the thing that they intended you to look at. Mm -hmm. Weird and squirrely. I kind of see why Ingo wanted to stick with something that you could yeah. tangible and shit. But like, yeah, there was a lot of infighting going on at SRI. At oh, I'm, I'm certain. Yeah. Keith Harari and Hella Hammond had pretty much had fucking enough of Ingo Swan, and they wanted to go start their own offshoot lab with Russell Tark. Lines were drawn, memos were written up, both pro and anti this offshoot lab. Ingo wouldn't fucking have none of it. And he said, basically, either Harari and Hammond go or I fucking go. That was like, none of the lines meant anything. He was just like, either they go or I go, that's it. And Harari and Hammond left. Shortly afterwards, Russell Targ would also leave. Now, according to Russell Targ, he left because of moral qualms about the military weaponizing psychic phenomenon and because he also didn't believe that there were psychics and non-psychics that everyone could do it in the movie third eye spies that's exactly what he says 
In Jim Schnabel's book, Remote Viewers, however, there's a different story. Hmm. Schnabel writes that on one occasion, when Putoff was in China at a conference, uh, Targ was supposed to prepare a lab report for the DIA. Hal Putoff gets a call from the DIA that the lab report they got was like the sloppiest fucking thing they had ever seen. Uh, Russell Targ fucked up statistics. He didn't show his work. He didn't write down all the procedures. It was bad science. I mean, the dude's blind, but, you know, Hal Putoff confronts him and he's like, dude, dude, you know, and and Russell Targ's like, he apologizes and promised he'd he'd do better next time. But very shortly after, word came down from DIA that Targ was out. Russell Targ and Keith Rari went out on their own. They would find some success using remote viewing on the stock market. Um, and apparently that's what Targ is still doing. That's a story for another date, perhaps. What's really interesting to me is with the DIA shit canning Russell Targ, right? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the skeptical shit you'll read about all this stuff uh, has to do with, well, the independent, you know, analysts or whatever that they sent in were all avowed capital S skeptics. Um, and fearing the giggle factor and shit. Uh, put off and like Kit Green just decided to not give them the operational stuff. They just did like showed them some lab results without giving them the mission data because they didn't want some fucking egghead yeah. <laughs> shitting on actual operational shit. Meaning they didn't show them the impressive stuff. They didn't show them the shit where I was locked down. They showed them Russell Targ's weird, mm-hmm. um, you know, lab shit. Yeah. Right. And what I want to point out is that like in the firing of Russell Targ, we have evidence that Analysts were looking over their lab reports, and if they were sloppiness, they weren't fucking tolerating it, right? Mm-hmm. Like they get a lab, they get a piece of piece of science, they look at it and go, "This is bad science," and they fire the motherfucker. One yeah. of the first, like one of the founding people in this project, right? Because they weren't tolerating that, and I think that that's like, I think that goes a pretty decent way to establishing credibility, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, just interesting. Um, Hal Putoff and Ingo Swan would stay on for a while. Eventually, Hal Putoff wanted to do some other stuff. Other crazy dude shit. Hmm. Hal Putoff left SRI in 1984 to work on researching zero-point energy. And I believe he is part of To The Stars Academy now. Oh. Yes. Well. And Putoff is also, allegedly. Huh. I don't know what to make of that. Yeah. Don't you not know what to make of that? Because I don't know what to make of that either. Ingo Swan would remain as the Jedi Master for the remote viewing program, now overseen by Albert Stubbledean. Stubbledean. <laughs> and here, too, is where Skip Atwater makes contact with a certain weird-ass facility slash compound slash lab slash summer camp slash daycare slash astral projection school called the Monroe Institute. Ah. Subject of a very super spooky document that makes the rounds on the internet about once a year. And next week, you're going to hear the full story on the Army Intelligence's involvement with the Monroe Institute. Oh, excellent. It's a lot deeper than just that paper. Okay. Uh, we're also going to meet a straight up piece of work named Ed Dames. Hmm. And we'll see how when you gaze too long into the spooky, the spooky gazes also into you and drives you fucking insane. Yeah, I can do that. This shit goes off the rails a bit. Uh, It's going to be fun. This is, we're going to get into remote viewing pyramids on Mars, UFOs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As soon as the scientists leave this program and it's just the military guys and Ingo Swan. Yeah. Like it gets real fucking strange. We can have fun now. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's weird. So, yeah. So the tower. The tower. I was thinking throughout this episode, the amount of times that this shit like falls apart, mm-hmm. loses funding, and then has to come together underneath a different umbrella. Yeah. Like, the the variety of ways that this whole psychic spy umbrella, everything under it, like comes apart, but then also manages to stay together. It just it, I feel like that is uh, yeah surmised by the yeah tower. definitely absolutely, and also um, Joe McMonagall. Yeah. His near-death experience. He gets broken down and pieced back together as something more. Yeah. Um, also, Mars, war, actually have the military coming in. Yep. You know, there's that. Oh, Tower is also, it's the path between Netzach and Hode on the Tree of Life. Right before it, right before it condenses into Yesod and then finally Malkuth. It's the thing that bridges the two, I guess, like, uh, hemispheres of the brain are like the masculine and feminine feminine inside Which makes the perfect sense line. for the hemispheric sync uh hemi sync shit yeah. yeah and uh the military and the scientists yep yeah yeah actually it's a spooky looking card but it actually worked quite well indeed it always does it always does yeah. all right thank you guys so much for listening tune in again next week and you can learn about how a dude in Oakley's thinks he can see aliens. On I'm excited. Mars. Yes. I'm excited for part three. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, we're um, gonna have fun. Yeah. Uh and yeah, if you like what we do, subscribe. Hey yes. friends. Give us tell, a rating. Give us a rating, give us a review. We would really appreciate it. Tell your psychics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe they're telling you right now. Or maybe they're telling you right now. Yeah. yeah. All right. Take care. Take care. Peace. <laughs>